Well, good evening. It's my great pleasure and blessing and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this evening. I had the blessing to preach a wedding this morning over in West Virginia. Um, so it seems like I'm a little out of breath and confused. That's running from one thing to another. I can turn with me to Matthew 28. It should be pretty obvious where we're going. All the way to the end, to verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So our topic is relating to people from non-Mennonite background. And then tonight's subhead is vision to overcome our differences. Well, so, so who are these people? These people with non-Mennonite backgrounds. Isn't that basically everyone? Well, at the very least, it's me and my family. You know, I think most of you know me, but uh, just a brief introduction, at least to say why I should be brought here to answer these questions. Um, I was not raised in a Mennonite home. In fact, I was not raised as a Christian. And we'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. But for now, just accept that I have a little information about people who aren't raised Mennonite or in a plain background of any kind. And I imagine some of you do too. You know, we often assume that we're a much more homogenous group than we really are. I mean, maybe that's because we have so many dairy farmers. You know, we think everything should be blended. But, um, you know, I, I gave my testimony at the Bereans one year, uh, and that was a real pleasure for me. Um, but a man came up to us, we were, Sherry and I were walking through the, the middle street there, and he came running up and he said, oh, 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 you're the couple who came in from the world. And, and he just wanted to talk to us and tell us all how wonderful it was that we were there. And he started telling us about his life story. And it was just seemed like, you know, it was just the strangest thing in the world that this couple had come in from the world. And while we're talking, I found out, you know, well, he had been in the army. And he hadn't been raised Mennonite. Um, but, you know, he had been in the church for so long that he had kind of forgotten that he was a person who came in from the world. And really, isn't that what we want when, when people come and join the church, that they feel like they've been here their whole lives, that they, they really, really belong here? So, well, we all do business out in the world, and we all have neighbors who aren't Mennonite. Uh, we have co-workers who aren't Mennonite, acquaintances, friends, family members. So there, there's no lack of opportunity for us to relate to people from a non-Mennonite background. And so as the title suggests, you know, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the obstacles between us and those people outside the church, outside our church, and how we overcome them to share the word of Christ. Well, you know, sometimes maybe you'll feel like it's really enough just to bring along the young people in our church. It seems like it's hard enough just to keep 
the sheep that we have to hold on to the flock? Do we really have the energy and the skills and the knowledge that we need to reach outside to other people who don't share our common culture? And what do we do with them if they come? You know, do we have the answers to their questions? Well, turn over to Jeremiah 1. And, you know, it kind of seems like God thinks that we do. If you go down to verse 17, he says, Therefore prepare yourself and arise, and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. So don't be afraid to share the reason of the hope within you with anyone. God has prepared you, and He promises to be with you and to give you the tools that will be required. Trust the Spirit. Well, so having said that, what are the obstacles between us and people who, who weren't raised Mennonite? What, what separates us? What kind of people are you reaching out to? You know, just as everyone in our church is not the same, so people outside the church are very different. So what are some of the backgrounds that might make it difficult for us to, to reach out to people? Well, first, we can be separated by our beliefs. A lot of the people that you reach out to, that you talk to, will just be unchurched. They won't, they won't have a church home already. You know, many people today have grown up with no knowledge of Christ. They have no Bible knowledge, little understanding of the history, and only vague ideas about spiritual things. You know, stories and ideas that you would normally count on as a starting point, they're just not there for them. They just don't know. I remember as a little boy, well, we went to church twice the whole time I was growing up. And I remember one time in particular going to Sunday school, and they had the, um, oh, what do you call it, the, the felt board, you know, that you put the buildings and the people on. And they had it all set up, and it was the crucifixion on the felt board. And it was, the city was behind, and there were the three crosses and the soldiers and, and I said, well, what is that? Because I didn't know. It was the first time I'd ever been to church. And one of the little girls in the class answered for me, and she said, well, see, that's Jesus, and these are the bad guys here. And that was my introduction to the gospel. So most people, a lot of people just don't have the, the starting point that you do. The, the, all the stories that you've grown up with. You knew who Jesus was from how little up. What teaching they have gotten around the church may have made them openly hostile. So you might find yourself on the defensive with them right from the start. They also might be indifferent to the message, having been taught that religion is only superstition and not anything that means anything in their life. In Acts 17, starting at verse 16, 
Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. How, how do you approach these people then? You don't seem to have anything in common. Well, it should provoke you that this place that calls itself a Christian nation, in this place there are so many people with absolutely no knowledge of Christ. Is that a description of a Christian nation? So, but don't be dismayed at their lack of knowledge. Have sympathy that they have nothing. They have nothing to hold on to. There, there's no faith for them to turn to, no comfort, only hopelessness. It was to the heathen that Christianity swept the known world in a generation. These people are ripe to hear and share the hope that's in you. Don't turn away because it's hard, because there's so much you have to teach them. Once they see what you have, they'll be eager to hear. Other people you'll talk to are churched. They have a church. Thankfully, most people in this country do still claim some kind of faith. And many of the people that you meet and interact with will be churched. Members of non-Anabaptist churches will not usually be indifferent to you. Your practices will either prompt curiosity or opposition. Why did the early church have so much conflict with the Jews? Because they could never admit that they'd murdered their Savior. Acts 7.51 You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, this is Stephen, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed him with their teeth. Stephen only told them the truth. And they knew it. They were cut to the heart. They knew he was speaking the truth to them. The right response would have been to repent. But the human response at being found wrong is anger. When people from liberal churches see your practices, that you have standards of dress, that you have standards of speech, that you, you have practices at all, they, excuse me, they have to question. They have to ask, are these things really biblical? And if they are, why don't we do them in our church? Now, that can either result in them being convicted or being angry at you because you've exposed something that they know they should be doing and don't want to. Well, what about us? How do you respond when you interact with other Anabaptists who are more conservative than you? How do you respond when you're talking to an Amish or an Old Order Mennonite? So do you, do you say, do you do bristle at the horse and buggy? That's not biblical. You don't have to do that. Maybe he'd explain to you why he thinks he does. Maybe he has a scripture for it. 
And if, you, if he does, well, we should at least be considering that, shouldn't we? Don't mistake people from other denominations, though, for fallen Mennonites. Okay? They aren't abandoning what they were taught. Instead, they're living what they've been taught as best as they can. They haven't been taught the, the scriptural principles that you have. They've been taught that they have freedom in Christ, that they don't have to respond to rules. Treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ who could have a better understanding of Christ and a better walk with Him. You know, R.C. Sproul was my favorite Calvinist. I like to listen to his teaching. But he always said, if my brother or sister believes it, it deserves a fair hearing. That doesn't mean I'm going to agree with him, but I'm going to give him a fair hearing. I'm going to give him the chance to defend the thing that he believes. And then I'll defend what I believe, and we can come to an agreement. Give them their hearing, and then show them a better way. But the Bible says this. That should always be the place where we start with another believer. It doesn't necessarily mean my community does this. Now, the Bible says this, and this is how I respond to what the Bible says. Remember, many churches teach a very limited view of history and Scripture. Instead of Scripture as the story of God's relationship with man, it's taught as a struggle as of oppression versus rebellion, the oppression of the law versus freedom under Jesus. And that explains a lot of people's distrust of rules and traditions. Now, another category of, of churched people would be people of other faiths. Now, Paul would describe them as heathen. But we, these are people who actually have a strong faith in something. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, etc. And they'll be more curious about you. You know, like American Christians, they might be anywhere from wholly secular to very faithful. They, they all have the same, the same spread of practice as we do. But they'll think that they know all about Christians. Okay, especially, especially Hindus I've interacted with in the past. They know all about Christians. But you defy a lot of those things that they know. The way that you act is not the typical behavior, the typical practice of a Western Christian. And so that provides a point of common interest. They want to know why. Um, Gandhi famously said, I like your Christs, but I don't like your Christians. So that means somewhere there's a break in the practice, doesn't it? So when you show Christ, now they have something to find out about, something to be interested in. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Your good conversation, your witness, your walk, your life, defies their preconceptions about Christ and Christians. And again, that makes them curious and provides an opening for the gospel. Now, another religious group you'll encounter will be patriots. 
You know, many of the people you know are very patriotic. Serving and ex-military people, policemen, firemen and medics, some people working for the government. Although you wouldn't think so if you read the news lately. But many of these people will tell you that they are very serious Christians. But they'll be offended by the doctrine of non-resistance. Now I can tell you that. That was my main obstacle in coming into the church. They're predisposed to Christ's teachings, but they've been taught that it's okay to serve two masters, the God and country, or they're deceived that God and country are, are one and the same. It may be intimidating, but military people especially, you know, they have their own language and a shared experience. It's really hard for people to, to break into, for outsiders to understand. But these are people that you can talk to. You know, on our last bus trip, or I guess the bus trip before last, we went down during Rolling Thunder when all the Vietnam vets ride into town on motorcycles. And they thought that was going to be the last one. And I don't remember how many, how many motorcyclists they said were on the mall. Was it 400,000 or 4,000? or I don't know, but it was wall-to-wall -wall Harleys. Everywhere you could go, if you've ever been to the mall, you can't imagine so many motorcycles. You, you couldn't barely walk between them. And we got sent over there to talk to them with our little bag of tracks and our, our CDs. That should have been a natural fit, right? I mean, I was raised in a military family. My dad served in the Army. My uncle served in the Army. My other uncle served in the Air Force. I had an uncle who served in World War II. Uh, another uncle, well, two uncles served in World War II, one, one in the infantry and one in uh, bomber. Should be able to talk to these people. My wife, you know, her father is a 30-year Marine. She should be able to talk to these people. And yet, it was very intimidating because we had stepped away from that world. And, and in a very real way, those people could say we betrayed that world. All right, becoming non-resistant, saying that God can handle it. Well, that's not the essence of, of military service. But, but keep in mind, these are very, they are very serious people. These are people who, for a living, are willing to sacrifice their life for what they love, for their country. And they believe their country consists of, guess what? You. So... It's a murderous profession, but it's a loving profession. It's a, a walking conflict, and people have a lot of trouble with it, and they're willing to talk. And we went through, and it was very hard to break into some of the conversations. You're, you're seeing people who had been, through, had been through war together, and now they were seeing each other again after how many years? And all oh, there were hugs and tears and reunions. It was, it was really lovely. You know, but we finally walked up to this one group and I asked them, you know, well, would you like a gospel tract or a gospel CD? And one man piped right up and he said, well, what's your gospel? Tell me what your gospel is. Well, I'm supposed to be a minister of the Lord. I should be able to tell what the gospel is. Right. But that was that was pretty intimidating. You know, I've had um, drill sergeant people yell at me before, <laughs> but not for that. And so, you know, I briefly told him the gospel. You know, you can tell the gospel from creation to Christ in about five minutes. And he sat there and he stood there and he nodded. And he nodded. 
And he said, yeah, I'll take your CD. You got it right. And then we talked for a while. And, and he said they were a Christian group. And they had been to Vietnam. They had served there. And he said, so many of my, my brothers out here, they're lost. And, and they can't find the Lord. And we're doing our best. But I want you to know, we're doing our best to bring them back. So, these aren't people you give up on. These are people you want in your church. Talk to them. They're, they are accessible. It's, it's not really what you think. Policemen and firemen, they're a little more accessible than military people, unless they're also ex-military people, because they've not been through quite the, the horror that some of the military people have. We're also separated from people outside of the church by culture. Some things we'll see, um, well, immodesty, you know, piercings, tattoos. You know, some people will just repulse you because of the way they look. People get their bodies all marked up and piercings. Some people even have their tongues forked. That seems to be a new fad. I don't know. But how do you respond to them? When, when, you, when you look at someone and you just want to turn away, how are you going to share the gospel with them? Well, in Luke 5, verse 12, it says, And it happened when he was in a certain city, Jesus, that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, no one was more terrifying in the first century than someone with leprosy. It was an incurable disease. It was contagious. Nobody knew how you got it. Sounds kind of familiar. But Jesus touched him. He was willing to reach out to him. He was willing to save him. Are we willing? You know, we have to be careful of judging people how they look. We had a brother come to our church several years ago. And it was funny, he was a very meek man. He was a shoe salesman. And he worked in a shoe store. And he was telling us, you know, one day we were in the shoe store and my brother and I were in the back and, and we looked out and a man had come in the store. And his face was covered with tattoos. His face. And they were, they were horrible, awful tattoos, flames and skulls and demons, and they were all over his face. And we just thought, how could he have done that to himself? And then we thought, oh, the poor man. And he was wandering around the store looking at shoes. And, and finally my brother said, well, we need to go out and, and serve him. <laughs> and so I went, he said. And I went out and I walked up to him and I said, well, sir, and instead of saying, can I help you, for some reason, I said, do you know Jesus? And he said the man's face under all those tattoos just lit up. And he said, do you know my Jesus too? So we can't judge people by the way they look. You know, the fact is, we all carry scars from our former lives. It's just some of us have acquired scars that are a lot easier to see. We're separated by language. Now, let's face it, language is deteriorating rapidly in, in the world among us. 
and we have to be careful not to be carried along. It's, it's bad language is contagious. And words that would have been used only to start a fight 30 years ago are just part of common speech now, just common usage. It's really sad. And when you're talking to people in the world, you find that you just need to just overlook it as much as you can. Just try to look at the person. And you need to keep speaking carefully yourself. You know, over time, your gentle, pure speech gets noticed. And, and it tends to moderate the way others speak around you. You know, I'll make a confession. Well, I haven't always been a Mennonite. And I used to be a pretty hard-drinking, hard-cussing man. And when we moved out here to the valley, I determined to leave that behind. And I got a job working here. And I'd been there a few years and had managed to temper my speech and thought I had control over it. And one day, I just got really frustrated and angry, and I said a curse word. And I think everybody in the building knew that I had said it within a minute or two. Messenger said that? And I never realized until that point how much is noticed by people that you just don't use foul language. It's an incredible witness. It's one of the most powerful witnesses that you have. In Luke 6.45, Jesus says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. There are really fewer, more powerful witnesses than your speech. You're going to have to deal with people who are living in sin. We have divorce and remarriage and just immorality. Sin makes people resistant to the gospel. And every day they live in sin can harden their heart a little more. And, and today we have a special sin problem. You people are rushing to make their sin permanent. You know, divorce is a sin. Well, remarriage adds an additional sin. And it makes it harder to repent of the original sin. Now there's an obstacle to going back and reuniting your marriage. There might even be children. It makes repenting of the original sin even more difficult. You know, the state and even some churches are encouraging completing all kinds of immoral relationships as marriages now. And again, making that sin a permanent commitment in the person's life. And many people claim that they're free to live in these relationships as Christians. Well, what do we say? Well, Romans 3.31, Paul tells us, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. God forbid. The idea that we can sin in the name of Christ is abhorrent. And it should be abhorrent to us. We have to stand on Scripture. The difficulty is not expressing our distaste for their situation, but God's. God's law is good. God has the right to make the law. And Jesus clearly says that to love him, we must keep his commandments. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In John 14, 23, he says again, Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. In John 15:10, he says, If you keep my commandments, 
You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 1 John 5.3, John reminds us, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, this conversation is not an easy thing. Divorce is a real stumbling block because the Old Testament provides for it. But nowhere does God approve of it. And so many churches allow and even approve it today that most people who are remarried will not separate in order to join our churches. They'll go somewhere else where they can stay in their relationship. But we can still tell them the truth. If they choose to find a church that doesn't require that of them, well, it's not for us to judge another servant. It's between them and God. But we're accountable to tell them the truth. So, we're different. But remember, we're different on purpose. We don't need to be less different than people in the world to make it easier to reach them. If we're no different, then what do we have to offer them? 1 Corinthians 6.17, Paul, actually quoting Isaiah, says, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch that what is unclean, and I will receive you. We're called to come apart from the world and to be closer to God, to keep ourselves holy so that we can be with a holy God. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 3-5, through 5, Paul tells Timothy, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of truth, who suppose that godliness means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. So we're also careful to separate ourselves from those who claim Christ, but teach false doctrines, and don't submit to Christ and the church. This often means that we can't be ecumenical. We can't participate with other denominations who hold doctrines in opposition to Scripture. An example in plain view in the verses here would be the prosperity gospel. Right? If you love the Lord, He'll make you rich. We're not to partake of things of the world to win the world. Well, if that's the case, then what does this mean? Turn over to 1 Corinthians 9, if you'd like. And down to verse 18. And Paul says, What is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, 
that I might be partaker thereof with you. So does this mean that I need to be a soldier to convince a soldier of the gospel? To be a patriot? To be able to convince a patriot that God comes before country? Does it mean that I need to live in sin to tell the gospel to sinners? God forbid. Did Jesus become any of these things? Then how did He reach these people? He knew their needs. He was God. He could look into their soul and know what separated them from Him and tell them. And tell them what they could do about it. And that's what Paul is saying here as well. To reach all these different people, he listened to them. He spent time with them. He got to know them so that he could understand them and how they thought, what was going on in their lives, and what separated them from Christ. Then he could gain them for Christ. You know, ever since the radio was invented, and then television, and now the internet, people have said, oh, this is going to be such an incredible tool for the gospel. I can put up a web page and reach thousands of people in one day. We can do a television show and, and my sermon will be heard by a million people. And this is what, a, what an incredible tool for the gospel. Well, if that's true, why haven't we seen, what, 50, 70 years of revival since the invention of television? Right? There have been television preachers almost from the first day because everyone thought this must be a great tool for the gospel. Because that's not how the gospel works. The gospel isn't just a message. The gospel has to be spread face to face because the people need to know you. They need to see that you love them, that you care about them, that you'll take some time with them. Because if Christ's followers don't have time for them, then why would they think that Christ does? We have to do that without compromising our own walk. That can be the trick. But the reason we get to know them is because they see that you have something that they want. They want to get to know you. Something is different about you. And they want to know what it is. And you can't give that something up and still win them for Christ. You have to stay you. So, that's a few of the kinds of people that you'll meet. And that's a little bit about reaching out to them. But what we're really asked for here was a single vision, right? Not a lot of little bits and pieces of advice. Well, if you're talking to a soldier, say this. Or if you're talking to you know, someone who's unchurched, say that. No, that's not what we're after. It has to be more than that. Well, John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Mark 12, 29 through 31, Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is, namely, is like, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And there is none other commandment greater than these. In Matthew 5, 
Starting in verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. But ye be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That thing that you have, that the people who meet you want, is love. They first see it because they see that we love one another. They see it when they see that we love the Lord. They see it when we offer them love, no matter how they might treat us. When you relate to people and you're willing to spend time with them, you're giving them a taste of that love for free. And when they want more, they'll learn that that love is really God's love. The burden of responsibility for how we relate to people is on us. It does nothing to do with how they approach us, what they do to us. Christ tells us we have to love. In every relationship, Jesus commands us to love. We show God's love by taking the time to learn who we're talking to and listening to them. By working to overcome differences instead of just putting people off. The way to relate to non-Mennonites is really the same as relating to anyone. If you want to get close to someone, you have to love on them a little bit. You know, after the South African government fell and they had these commissions and to make reconciliation between the people who had murdered people and persecuted people all during the, the white government's rule, and this one woman faced her husband's murderer. And the court asked her, what do you want us to do? And she said, I don't have anyone to love anymore. What he did took away my husband, and now I don't have anyone to love. What I want to happen is I want him to have to come to my house every day so that I can love on him a little bit so that he can see Jesus in me and be changed. The first question when we meet someone isn't, do you know my Lord Jesus Christ? It should really be, how are you? You know, If you take the time to get to know someone, you won't have to ask if they know Jesus Christ. It'll be plain for you to see. So how are we different? And what do we have to offer? We have love. We have our love. We have Jesus' love. All the spiritual growth we want to see in people is going to follow from that.